Hello, everyone. It's great to be back and great to have this weekend over. Look at this picture here. Yes, what a blessing. Our younger daughter, Caitlin, is now married and in Hawaii. And I am done with all things wedding. <laughs> oh, boy. Months and months of planning, worrying, spending. <laughs> and then it's over in a puff of smoke. <laughs> oh, it was great. <laughs> I'm so glad it's done. <laughs> Have I said that? I'm really glad it's over. At what age do you begin to have senior moments? Well, I'm thinking it's age 54. We got back from the airport, flying back in from the wedding, our daughter's wedding, and we landed, and is often the case, when you take off at DFW, we're uh, on shaky ground here, the uh, terminal that you park at is not the terminal that you land at. And so you always have to, you know, get on the little Skylink thing that takes you around, but the, you're challenged because they, the, they give you your luggage outside the zone that's, you know, secure. So if you want to get your car first, you've got to take the Skylink around and then drive around, and one of you's got to stay there and get the luggage, and the other, but what if there's only one of you? It's just a mess. <laughs> it's just an amazing mess. Like, why don't we just land at the same place we took off from, if it's a round trip? Anyway. Well, it turns out that had happened so often that I just assumed we parked at a different terminal. Well, we didn't. But I got on the Skylink going to this terminal that I was absolutely certain. And you know, all the parking places at DFW, like all the terminal parking, are all identical. So, I mean, I'm at Terminal B parking when I should be at Terminal E parking, and I went to the exact place where our car is supposed to be, and it's not there. Well, maybe it's the floor above. So I went above. Nope, it's not there. Finally, I call Kathy and say, do you remember what? terminal and she says well I I wrote it down let me look and she says yeah it's the one I'm standing in so <laughs> anyway an hour later I finally get back to our van and it was literally right across the street from where where we got the luggage <laughs> senior moment sometimes I'm shocked by the things we forget Kathy and I were recently trying to remember the address of a house that we lived at for 12 years. Was it 3229 or was it 4332? We literally couldn't remember it. It took us like five minutes to remember a place we had lived for 12 years. But names are the worst. Like at our daughter's wedding, all these relatives and old friends show up that we haven't seen in years. In fact, one lady probably came up to me and she said, you probably don't remember me. And I just kind of looked at her, and I forget the nice way I said, you're right, I don't. 
What I was really thinking is, how could I possibly remember you when you look nothing like I remember? <laughs> of course, I haven't changed at all. It's just everybody else. But seriously, names are hard. And church doesn't make it easier. I mean, thankfully, we've got name tags in our class. Do you remember, you imagine what this class would be like with all the senior potential moments? Most of the time, we just come up to one another and just say, hey, good morning, uh, brother. Thank goodness we can say brother or sister, or we would not know what to say. Well, when we were in high school, remember that? And the teacher, the teacher would say, take out a blank sheet of paper. That just sends chills down your spine, just those words, take out a blank sheet of paper. I mean, it's like even when you're not speeding and you see a police lights behind you, you immediately tap your brakes because you figure that something's wrong. But a blank sheet of paper immediately causes anxiety. Um, and whether we know it or not, it's sort of like a senior moment because you are faced all of a sudden with you and your memory. There is nothing, there's not even multiple choice. Like when you come up to someone, like if I, if I see Jim and I can't remember his name, it's not like something appears above his head that says A, Jim, B, Bob, C, Pete, and you get to pick. No, it's a blank sheet of paper. But uh, people we see all the time, no problem. Our current address or phone number, no problem. Why is that no problem? Because it's information that we access all the time. But when it's something that's happened in the past or something that's not that we access very often, then all of a sudden it's a blank sheet of paper. The spiritual life is no different. God gives us blank pieces of paper, pop quizzes. And the time to prepare for those tests is not the moment of. You can't cram for the spiritual life. You have to prepare for it ahead of time. And God's tests are wonderfully effective in uh, accessing the, the memory that we have or our ability to, uh, to pass that test. God's tests are not for information but for application. They're not for content, they're for character. And who you are in the moment is who you are. I mean, when, when a test comes into, into your life, it's like God tossing you a live grenade. It's like, you don't have very long to figure out what to do with this thing. Your character is immediately going to respond when you're in a situation that's a test. But a lot of times in those situations, it's sort of a sad revelation. I mean, we fail a lot. Uh, our character is shown to be weak at times. Sometimes we succeed, but a lot of times we fail, and we tend to remember those failures. We tend to uh, stockpile those failures in our emotions. The great, things about, the great thing about God's test, though, is he's not giving us a final exam. Every day is not a final exam. Every test that we take is not a final exam. That if you fail this, you are a failure. No, God gives us tests to reveal who we are and then urges us, I can make you better. You have a need to depend on me. Continue to come forward and to grow. Turn with me to the book of 2 Peter. 2 Peter. 
As we continue along in our series where we take a message from each book of the Bible, we've made our way to 2 Peter, and as was last time around with 1 Peter, we're on familiar ground. We did a whole series on 2 Peter a few years back, and so it's familiar territory to us, or is it? How many of us could stand up, even though we spent months in 2 Peter, and say one thing? you remember about our time together in 2 Peter? Probably nobody, including me. <laughs> because it's not, it's not our current address. It's not our current phone number. It's not a name that we see all the time. There is a need in this wonderful, massive book of the Bible to constantly be in the Word, because otherwise we will forget. We will draw a blank. We will have a senior spiritual moment in those tests of life. Second Peter chapter 1 gives us sort of the theme of the book, and rather than looking at a particular verse, we're going to do sort of like we did with First Peter. We're going to look at a number of verses throughout the book as more of a theme, because Peter definitely has the theme in Second Peter. Look down at verse 12. 2 Peter 1, verse 12. Peter writes, Therefore I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them, and have been established in the truth which is present with you. And I consider it right, as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. Peter says, I want to remind you of what you already know, because you need to not forget it. In fact, I'm about to die, he, he says. The Lord Jesus made it clear to me I'm about to go. And I... Of all the things that I could tell you in my final words, I've chosen to tell you what I've already told you. I've, told, I've chosen to tell you what you already know. In fact, I will be diligent so that even when I'm gone, you will remember it. You'll be able to call these things to mind. How essential are reminders? What is one of the first things we do when we lose power in our house? Well, what's the first thing we do? How do you find the phone? You need a light. Now, most of us, our phones are never with us. We take our phones in the shower with us. <laughs> but our phones are usually so close at hand that we've got lights handy in some form or fashion, right? But we search for light, don't we? When power goes out, we'll light candles, we'll find flashlights, we'll grab our phone because we don't like the dark. We really don't like the dark. Some are afraid of the dark. There is something about how God designed us that needs light. If we're in a dark place and we see a light, we go to the light. We are drawn to the light because light gives us insight to see what we couldn't see otherwise. You can be in a room full of people, but you'd never know it if there was no light. Light shows us 
what we can't see otherwise. If we were to keep reading here in chapter 1, Peter would say, uh, of, the, of all the things that he wants to remind us, he would say in verses 16 through 21, God's word is that light. And you'd do well to cling to it as to a lamp in a dark place. It's like God's word, the Bible, is our flashlight when all the lights have gone out. And we live in a dark place. Steve Ferrar was just telling us about the darkness of our world. And the Bible is the light for that. It is an essential part of what gives us insight in a dark place. Peter says, we cling to it. We hold to it. We pay attention to it, verse 19, as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your heart. Until Christ comes, he basically says, cling to the word of God. Um, The Apostle Paul told the elders of Ephesus when he met with them at Miletus, Paul told them that savage wolves would come in among them and speak twisted things. Paul would later write to the pastor of Ephesus, to Timothy, and warn him of the same thing. Peter says it well here in 2 Peter. Look at chapter 2. This is why we need to hold on to the word of God. Chapter 2 begins, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Peter says, look, there is a reason that we've got to cling to the Bible, because there are people that are going to lie. There are people who are going to contradict. Uh, Even the master who bought them, they're going to deny the deity of Jesus Christ. And it doesn't take long for false doctrine to sneak in. I mean, doctrine, if you think about the early church, you know, and them planting the garden of God, as it were, with the church, it doesn't take long for weeds to grow. Weeds grow all by themselves. You've noticed that, right, in your garden? You don't plant weeds. You pull weeds. You plant what you want. And then you've got to water it and nurture it and care for it and prune it. But weeds... They take care of themselves. They will take over if you don't pull them. Um, a few years, a few years, um, centuries really, after the church was established in Alexandria, Egypt, there was a bishop, a bishop, think pastor, named Arius, who began teaching that Jesus, the Son of God, had a beginning, meaning that he was uh, created by the Father. And as you can imagine, there was significant uh, frustration or concern about this when you have a bishop in the church teaching what amounted to heresy. And so the the Roman Emperor Constantine called together a council at a place called Nicaea, which is in modern Turkey, right at the eastern edge of of a lake there south of Istanbul. And he called together 300 bishops that met there to discuss this and basically Constantine said, you guys need to work this out. And after three months, the council at Nicaea developed a creed. The word creed is uh, from a word that means I believe. Credo means I believe. So a creed is a statement of faith. It's a statement of what we believe. And uh, the Nicene Creed basically was a statement that declared the Son of God was not created, that he shared an eternal nature 
with the Father and with the Spirit, and it basically confessed the basic beliefs that Christians have believed all the way back to the time of the apostles. Now, I don't know if you grew up, did anybody grow up in a church that read the Nicene Creed? Anybody? That's pretty rare. We don't do it in our circles. I mean, I don't think we've ever done it here at Stonebriar, read the Nicene Creed, except today's the day. (laughs) We're going to do it. Now, it's not terribly short, but it is very uh, insightful. Three months it took to produce this statement, and it was to give a defining, to take all of what Scripture says about the deity of Jesus particularly, there's a whole bunch on him, and then, but, but the Trinity, and to say this is what the church has believed all the way back since the apostles. Now, a lot of times Protestants will get hung up on the, toward the end where it says we believe in the Catholic church. It just means universal church. Don't, don't let that trip you up. So you can still say it, just know what, you, what, what you're saying when you say it, okay? All right, I won't make you stand, but uh, sit up straight, pay attention, clear your throat. <laughs> and let's read this together, the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through him all things were made, for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and was made human, He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, He proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to life in the world to come. Amen. This is the Nicene Creed, and for almost 1,600 years, 1,600 years, this Nicene Creed has been confessed by all branches of Christianity, and by that I mean Protestants, Catholics, and Orthodox. I mean, how rare is it that all three of those are going to agree about anything, but they all say the Nicene Creed is the foundation of our faith. And it needs to be, not just the creed, not that the creed itself is in any way inspired, but it's true because it is based off of inspired scripture. Peter says you need to pay attention to the word of God because false teachers are going to come in. And it happened. The Nicene Creed was written because weeds started growing in the garden of the church. Look at 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. Chapter 2 is all about those false teachers. Chapter 3, 
he says the same thing again. He says, This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you, in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. So he says, you need to remember, and he says here in verse 2, remember two specific things. The words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets. This is the Old Testament, the whole Old Testament. Remember those words, and then he says, and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. This would represent the New Testament. In other words, all the word of God. He's calling us to remember the whole Bible. So, a couple of principles that we can draw from Peter's words. The first is this. We can forget the essentials, so determine to read God's word repeatedly. We can forget the essentials, so determine to read God's word repeatedly. You see, the essentials are so essential, we can take it for granted. I mean, Jesus is God. The Holy Spirit is God. Of course. Who would ever deny that? Well, it didn't take long, and it happened. And the Nicene Creed had to come out, had to come to be in order to pull weeds and basically say, look, the Nicene Creed is, is what the church has believed all the way back from day one. Now, cults today will say that the Nicene Creed uh, invented the doctrine of the Trinity. So, you know, the church didn't really believe that Jesus is God or the Holy Spirit, you know, is God just like the Father or that there's this thing called the Trinity that we call the Trinity. That's, that's not right. It wasn't until the Nicene Creed invented that, you know, the, the early church invented that. No, the Nicene Creed basically summarized what the church had believed all the way back to the apostles. That's why when groups claim to have a new insight or a belief that contradicts the scriptures as taught by the apostles, we can clearly weed them out as error. And that's also why when we're reading the scriptures and we come up with an insight that no one's ever thought of before, then we need to really pause and say, wait a minute, why would I be the only one to see this in all of history? It, ca- it should cause great humility on our part. We need to know the word of God, Peter says, so that you can recognize error. Um, and this is Peter's point in 2 Peter 3, first two verses, and then in verse 3, he gives an example of this. Verse 3, he says, Know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. It's sort of interesting in the, the words here for this, this, uh, this mocking. Notice the mockers are basically using biblical language, the promise of his coming. Well, where do we hear about that in the Bible? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, where do we hear about them in the Bible? All continues just as it was since the beginning of creation. Oh, so you're assuming there's a creation. Where do we hear about that? In the Bible. 
and yet all of a sudden the Bible is held into question. Boy, we see that a lot today, where we're in a culture that is believes in God, and yet you, you just want to say, well, what God? Well, is it the God of the Bible? Well, if it's the God of the Bible, then, you know, the Bible actually talks about God and says more than just this sort of blank slate of what you want God to be. The Bible actually describes God in his holiness and what we need to do to have a relationship with him. If it was true in Peter's day, it is true still now. The last days still have mockers. And he gives this specific example. Where is the promise of his coming? You can see the skeptics of our age asking that question, and if not that question, other questions, all to discredit the word of God. Where is the promise of his coming? I mean, people, people expect God to act immediately if he's going to act. And we fall for that. We can fall for that. We can get very discouraged if when we pray, all of a sudden, the doorbell doesn't ring with our answer. Do you ever see that, um, I love the Bugs Bunny cartoon where he's in the desert, I think, and he walks up to this mailbox and he, uh, he writes a letter, you know, and orders something from Acme, whatever, it's always Acme, you know, orders something and it licks it, puts it in the mailbox, all of a sudden, zoom, package for Bugs Bunny, and there he is, that's what he ordered. That's what we want our prayer life to be, isn't it? We pray and immediately Amazon's at the door with our answer in a box. It just doesn't happen like that, does it? It's so rare. In fact, much of our answered prayer awaits us in glory. And right now, we are just waiting on the Lord and trusting in the Lord. And what's also true is that when the Lord does answer our prayers, it never removes the need to trust him. God gives us answers to prayers not so that we can go, oh, whew, now I don't have to trust the Lord anymore. He gives us answers to prayer that we may trust him more, but not less. You're always going to have something to trust God for. People want God to act immediately, but the reality is God's got his own timeline, and it's according to wisdom. It's not according to us. It's not according to impatience. And now, if we were to go on, you know, this uh, and read here, where's the promise of his coming, you know, and blah, 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 and Peter goes on to say, look, you know, there, there's some things they haven't noticed, and he talks about in verse 5, they, they um, omit the part that God actually has dealt with evil and, um, and the flood and creation and all that. And then in verse 8, he gives a, um, a very important observation, or, or wants us to not miss a very important observation. He says this, But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient with you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. It was a missions conference a month or two ago um, that I heard about a statistic. I can't remember the exact number, if it's 30,000 or 40,000, but it was an astounding number. The estimate of the number of people that are coming to Christ daily in the world. It's in the multiple 10,000s. Daily coming to Christ. 
And so we think, Lord, why don't you come? You know, well, it'd be great if he came. But it's sort of like what Paul says, you know, to depart is better to be with the Lord, but to stay is better for you. There's a reason that God delays. And Peter tells us, he is patient with you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So let's say even conservatively, if it was 10,000 people a day, if God just waits a week, that's another 70,000 people in glory. And he's waited, what's it been, almost 2,000 years now? God loves and God wants people to repent. And he gives us space for his grace to kick in. And Peter teaches us this by quoting or paraphrasing of Moses. When Moses writes, a day is like a thousand years. And notice it doesn't say a day is a thousand years. A lot of people get messed up theologically thinking that somehow a day is a thousand years in God's mind. Peter says it's like a thousand years. This is a, a simile. He's using a, um, a metaphor to, to, uh, to give a comparison. Our patience in a day is like God's in a thousand years. God is so patient. He is so patient wanting people to repent. Now, keep your finger here, if you would, in 2 Peter and turn to Psalm 90. As I said, Peter paraphrases Moses and the context is a wonderful context. Whenever you see a quotation in the New Testament of an Old Testament verse, think of it like a hyperlink on a web page. You click that link and it opens up a whole new context that's bigger and broader that that one link represents. It's that way in Psalm 90. Psalm 90 is written by Moses, we're told. And because that is so, Psalm 90 is going to be the oldest psalm we have in the book of Psalms. Psalm 90, look at verse 3. Moses writes, You turn back, uh, you turn man back into dust and say, Return, O children of men, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes, or as a watch in the night. Look down at verse 13. Um, Sorry, verse 9. Verse 9. He says, For all our days have declined in your fury. We have finished our years like a sigh. As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due to strength, 80 years. Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow, for soon it is gone and we fly away. Who understands the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is due you? So teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Moses is basically saying uh, life is short. And even you know, a full life of 80 plus years, which Moses had and then some, is, uh, is short in the grand scheme of God. And he gives us an application here in verse 12 that is very helpful. He says, teach us to number our days. Why? Here's the purpose. That we may present to you a heart of wisdom. To realize that our life is so short and 
that the number of days ahead of us is shorter than the number of days behind us, Peter says, to teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom, that we may live wisely. Time is short. Turn back to 2 Peter. Peter's basically saying that God's patience toward us is to give us the opportunity. His patience, one day like a thousand years, is to give us an opportunity. Listen to what Paul wrote in the book of Romans. You don't need to turn there, but this is Romans chapter 2. He starts in verse 4. Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Now, both Peter and Paul in both of these chapters are writing to a context of unbelievers, but making a point to believers, and particularly if you look back at uh, 2 Peter 3, when he says in verse 9, The Lord's not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all who come to repentance. And then he talks about the, the destruction of the, of the world. But then look at verse 14. He gives an application. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. And regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just also, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you. You see, God's not just concerned about all the people out there to repent, but he uses the people who don't know the Lord as an example. If they need to repent, how much more do we who know the truth, how much more should we who know the truth or as he says in verse 14, you look for these things. Since you look for these things, you know they're true. Be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. And then verse 15, you know, and regarding those mockers, regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. In other words, don't worry about the fact that it's taken so long for Jesus to come. There's a reason. Consider it salvation for all the people who don't know the Lord. You see, God's not just waiting on the sinner to repent. He's also waiting on us that we might live a life of faithfulness. And with that in mind, let me just give you a couple of questions. Uh, These are hard questions to answer, so just think about them in the silence of your own honesty. Are you afraid that God's will may not be your will or that somehow what he wants for you pales in comparison for what you want? Is there some specific area where Jesus has been knocking at your door, but you keep it deadbolted? Is there something God is asking you to release to him that you are refusing to let go of? Maybe it's some act of obedience or trusting him seems to be too much to ask. Maybe it's some dream or desire that's so strong that it overshadows what might be God's desire for you. These aren't easy questions to answer, but they're essential. Look at the final verses of Peter's book here, 17 and 18. He writes, You therefore, beloved, 
knowing this beforehand. Be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Peter's final words here, literally his final words, I mean, these are like the last words of the Apostle Peter, is telling us to be on your guard. Be ready. Always be ready for that pop quiz. Always be ready to defend the truth. And notice the purpose or the reason why he says, so that you are not carried away. Perfect timing. Drop it in a cup of water. That works really well. Amen. That's all right. That's all right. The Bible speaks. So Peter's final words to us are literally his final words. And notice this picture he gives us here. Do not let yourself be carried away. Be on guard so that you are not carried away. Picture people picking you up and carrying you away. That's the picture here. That's ridiculous. Peter says, if you're not on guard, that's what's going to happen. That's what's going to happen to your heart. You will be picked up and carried away by unprincipled men, by the error of unprincipled men. So to be on your guard, Peter writes, in all of 2 Peter, his emphasis is the Word of God. Know the Word of God. Be in the Word of God on a regular, if not daily, basis. Because otherwise, you've got a whole chapter 2 to say what's going to happen if you don't. These false teachers are going to come in and they are going to get you. They're going to carry you off. They'll carry you away. And he repeats it again in the third chapter. These unprincipled people will carry you away. And, and you and I know that our culture is unprincipled. And we struggle with the unprincipledness of it as well because we have a fallen nature. And it is at times very attractive, very alluring, very deceptive, especially when we're waiting on God to answer our prayers and that doorbell still hasn't rung. And the world always offers a shortcut to the will of God. Peter is saying, you know this beforehand. Don't be surprised by it. You know this beforehand. Be on your guard so that you're not carried away. You think, yeah. That's great. I mean, I'm, I'm sure Peter had somebody in mind when he wrote this, but, I mean, to deny the Lord, come on. You know, to, to, to walk away and not live a faith. I mean, yeah, I've got this little sin, that little sin, but I confess it, we're done, I'm back in, in good with God, but I'm never going to be carried away. Who was it that told Jesus Christ, Lord, though all may fall away, I will not. It was Peter. And what did he do that very night that he made that confession? He was carried away. He wasn't on his guard. You think Peter knows what he's writing about? Peter walked with Christ, and he still struggled. How much more you and I, who walk with Christ, will struggle? 
So his final words to us are important words. You can fall away. In fact, say it with me. I can fall away. I can fall away. You can. In fact, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he says the beginning of thinking you can't fall away or the beginning of falling away is thinking you can't. Let him who thinks he stands beware lest he fall. So here's the second principle. We never stand still spiritually, so determined to grow. There's no park in the spiritual life. In the car, you're driving a, you're driving a standard, not automatic. You remember what that's like? It's really hard to do it on a hill, like at a stoplight. You know, you've got to be quick on the feet to make that thing happen, or you're bumping the car behind you. Spiritual life is like driving a standard. You're not still. You are constantly moving. And, you know, you can keep that, you can break in a standard by sort of keeping the gas going, you know, with that wonderful little balance of the clutch and the gas at the same time. You don't even have to touch the brake. But you understand what I'm saying, what Peter is saying. You're either moving forward or you're moving backward. You're never standing still. Peter says in verse 18, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord. Be on guard. Grow. That's how you're on guard, is growing. How do you grow? By being in the Word. By being in the Word on a regular basis. I read some time ago that uh, the great chief of the Blackfoot Indians, Crowfoot, uh, gave permission for the Canadian Pacific Railroad to build across his territory. And so the railroad gave Crowfoot a lifetime pass on the railroad. And he took the pass, put it in a leather pouch, put it around his neck, but never rode the train. He had, he had the permission. He had the ability, but he never rode it. I thought about that in relation to the Word of God that sits on our nightstand or that sits on our dining table, or worse, that sits on some shelf. We'll hang pictures on the wall that have Bible verses on it. We might even memorize a verse or two. But how often do we utilize what we're given? God's word was not given to decorate our homes. God's word was given to penetrate our hearts. We've got the resources. We just have to avail ourselves of them to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's like having money that we don't spend. You hear about those people that die in poverty, and they go and they enter their homes and find out they've got thousands of dollars stuffed in their mattress? That's what it's like having a Bible that we don't apply and we don't read. God the Father urges us to walk in obedience not because he demands control of our lives as much as he wants us to succeed. And he's built us to respond to Scripture. He's built us to be drawn to the light, not to grope in the darkness of our current day. So those principles, once again, we can forget the essentials. It can happen. So, determine to read God's word repeatedly. I hope you're doing that on a regular, if not daily basis, to read God's word. Second, we never stand still spiritually, so determine to grow. You have to admire Peter's humility. 
You know, at the end of his life, there in Rome, about to be crucified upside down in what is today St. Peter's Square, and instead of writing something very impressive, he simply goes back to the basics. He says, I'm about to go. I'm about to die. This is what I want you to remember. Be in the Word. Commit yourself to the Word, both the Old and the New Testament, because there are people that want to carry you away. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the Apostle Peter, this wonderful man that we've spent so much time with in years past in First and Second Peter. But again, we get a glimpse of his heart here in Second Peter. His final words to us are words of reminder. We think also of his quotation of Psalm 90 and Moses' reminder there that we read, that you might teach us to number our days, that we might present to you a heart of wisdom. We have spent enough time, Lord, in the past chasing the things of the world. As we move forward, as we draw a line in the sand today, as it were, help us to determine, not merely for the rest of our lives, that we will be with be with you in the word or that we will walk faithfully, but that you will give us an awareness of our ability not to do that, to not have a confidence in ourselves, but to, in some sense, not trust ourselves, that we would come into your word with an expectation and with clinging to the promise that you will help us to grow and help us to be on our guard against the error of unprincipled people in this dark world. Lord, how we long for the coming of Christ, and yet at the same time how we rejoice in what you're doing in the world until that time. Give us the strength and faith to wait on you and to trust you, and in the meantime, to cling to the scriptures as to a lamp in a dark place. And we pray in Jesus' name.